Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back to a new season of The Big Interview. Yes, we've missed you too. And we hope you think we're back with a bang. Luca Vialli is a guy I've had the privilege of knowing since just before he captained Juventus to the 1996 Champions League final. In this, the first of a two-part Big Interview, Luca dissects his memorable Scudetto win with Sampdoria, reflects on losing the 1992 European Cup final to Cruyff's dream team at Wembley, and reminisces about Gazzetta Football Italia and the golden days, and how he himself is currently taking Italian TV by storm with his reality football show alongside Lorenzo Amoruso, Nightmare Squads it's called. We've all known a few. Part two will be along on Saturday morning, but for now, sit back and enjoy the first part of this fascinating conversation with Gianluca Viali. Enjoy. So, um, Luca, everybody's got the misfortune to have to listen to me every two weeks on the big interview knows that I get quite bubbly, quite excited about interviews like this. There are very few that I've been as excited about as this one. You were my favourite player of the 90s by a long way. I was lucky enough to meet you during the 90s. And here we are back again. So for me, this is like heaven. It's paradise. But let's begin by talking about nightmares. Let's begin by talking about Squadra de Uncubo, which I think means, what, nightmare squads? And has made you a television star in a different way altogether in Italy. Try to let our, our beloved listeners understand a little bit about what this nightmare squad is about and how much fun you're having. Well, first of all, Grant, I just want to say that it's great to see you. We haven't seen each other for a long time. True even though we go back a long time, back to the 90s, and you look very fit, very <laughs> handsome, as usual. The rest and of this uh, podcast will be true, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Obviously, living in Spain, you know, by the sea, in a lovely place. It's, like it's changed me for the better. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, the English translation of the, TV sh- the Italian TV show is called uh, Football Nightmares. Ah. And it's a, TV, a new TV format, original and quite unique, owned by Fremantle, the TV production company, which also produces um, shows of the likes of X Factor and MasterChef, so they know what they're talking about. And basically, it's a story of transformation. It is myself and my good friend Lorenzo Moruso, former Glasgow Rangers captain, and what we do, we identify a team at non-professional level in need of help because results are not good enough, uh, the structure is not good enough, the organisation is, uh, is terrible, the players don't get on with each other, the manager is not particularly skillful, so there's a lot to do there. And we find out everything about them before we turn up, and then we turn up unexpectedly, and we meet them for the first time. And if you can imagine, we open the door, the dressing room, and these guys see us for the first time, and, you know, they can't believe it. And then we spend a week with them, we've got our own strategy, 
we tell them what to do. Lorenzo works with the players on the pitch. I'm more dealing with the fans, with the chairman, with the manager, so I don't get changed, if you know what I mean. I just wear my <laughs> lovely suits all the time. I'm the boss. He's my right-hand man, Lorenzo. And then at the end of the week which is very entertaining and, and very tiring for the players because we, we get them to do a lot of stuff. There's the match because it's the normal championship. So we come in, we spend a week and then they play on a Saturday, so on a Sunday and hopefully you'll see an improvement. But our aim is to improve them, not just short term, but long term. Plant the seed, tell them how it should be done. Basically, you know, they're a mess and we try to make them better. And then we move on, we go to another club uh, and we spend another week there. And it's been fantastic because we have gone up and down the country, uh, different places, different personalities, different accents. Uh, the food is different, the weather conditions are different. And it's allowed me to rediscover a, a beautiful country, mine, which uh, <laughs> I've been away for far too long. And basically we thought that we were kind of um, guardian angels of the beautiful game. And as much as we admire these guys because they do it for free, they just do it for the sake of the game, for passion. They don't get paid. They're non-professional footballers. But at the same time, we remind them that whenever you wear a football kit, a pair of boots, whenever there's a referee and there's an opponent or a teammate, you must do it properly, with dignity, with respect for the beautiful game. So our um, aim was to just tell them, look, well done, you are heroes, but you should be doing it better. Because, for example, the first team that we, we worked with, 35 games, 32 losses and three uh, draws. The manager was called, called himself the prophet. Because is this the guy who looked a little bit like yes, the Roma manager? Exactly. And he's sort of doing a narrative dance in the changing room. Yeah, and much shorter than the Roma manager. But yes, uh, the prophet was had some sort of communication skill. Was something that we had to <laughs> <laughs> adjust. Luca said subtly, beautifully uh, said. And, and then we played a match on a Saturday. We won away from home for three-two, and we were two-one down, and then uh, we scored in the last five minutes, two goals, and I nearly cried because um, it was just the perfect beginning of something that uh, we hoped was going to be successful and that proved that it is a TV format that can work. And imagine in England, Football Nightmares, uh, run by David Beckham and Vinnie Jones, for example. Imagine how, you know, explosive, explosive combination. I'd say run by Luca Vialli and Renzo Amoroso. <laughs> well, I, I, I would say... And Lorenzo was fantastic. He's a funny man. He's, huh? he's not just funny. Character, no, I mean uh, a, a yeah. character. He's because he's, uh, he's quite in your face. Aggressive sometimes, but he means well. And all the players at the end of this week, very, very tough week with Lorenzo, because Lorenzo doesn't take any prisoners. Mm. But they kept in touch uh, through social network. Yeah. They, they fell in love with each other, believe it or not. So yeah, it's been, it's been uh, great to work with. Do you have to be so. careful? I mean, the, the task in real terms, b beautiful TV, I understand. We watch and it's in Italian. <laughs> yes. But do you have to be careful that you don't overawe them? Because some of them will show off, some of them won't listen, some of them might go, these are my heroes. So in a week, to communicate, to teach anything is hard. To turn a 35 game without a win streak is, is next to impossible. I understand why there might have been tears. The reactions to you by the people around must vary from A to Z, from awe, jealousy, dogged, I'll do anything these people say. You must see all kinds of humanity as well as all faces of Italy too. In fact, I think that the rewarding thing is just to 
give something back, but also we learn so much from these guys. Yes, there are different personalities, but overall they are quite happy to see us there, to work with us, because they see it as an opportunity to improve, to learn something. And um, we have realised that it's all about confidence. So if you turn up, you tell them what they're doing wrong, sometimes you need to you really be sort of really... Tell them face. straight. Yeah, tell them straight. And, uh, but then they, they understand and they try and... Um, and they see that what we are trying to explain is, is, is good, they really feel like, oh, we are doing what the professionals do. Mm. How lucky are we? And therefore, the reaction has always been uh, very positive. And then, because it's such an intense week for them, some of them just turn up at 3 o'clock in the afternoon after working from midnight to mm-hmm. 2 o'clock in the afternoon because mm-hmm. they've got like a night shift. So they still turn up, they train, they do it with passion. But understanding better... Or maybe just a few details yeah. can make a huge difference. And as I said, it's a matter of confidence. And sometimes, it's, you know, from my point of view and from Lorenzo's point of view, is about finding a compromise between what you want to do as managers. So from a footballing point of view, there is a strategy, but also we need to respect that this is a TV show. So there are writers and we need to make it so that it works on a big screen, on TV. So it's a compromise between what we want to do and what the writers need us to do in order to create a, a product that is uh, you know, entertaining. But I swear, everything is genuine. Everything is spontaneous. And um, the cameras are there to witness what goes on, but we don't act for the camera. That's the thing, because yeah. in some of these reality shows here, so, you know it's a little yeah. bit constructed, but also here, I don't mean Squadra de Incubo, there is a temptation for the camera to mock the eccentric or to even to, the camera can exploit the eccentric. Now, the mini Spalletti that we saw was quite eccentric. When that's on show, do you just let them be themselves or can you protect people? Or are there times when the players maybe fail at a task or something where you, you protect them or you just say, listen, you're on TV, we'll show what we, what we see? Yeah, exactly. Well, obviously there are editors that sort of put the, all the footage together, but we want it to be real. Uh, this is the agreement. This was the agreement with, uh, with Fremantle and the directors and all the writers. Football, it's... Um, it's a great game, but people know so much about football that you cannot really cheat them. You, know, you, you need to really film what goes on and everything has got to be really genuine and spontaneous. Uh, otherwise, if you start acting and if you start sort of building stuff because you want a perfect end to the story, it doesn't work. Mm. You know, we have filmed eight episodes, for example, with eight different teams and uh, we won t- two matches we drew two matches and we lost four matches. That's exceptional. So, yeah, and the four matches that we lost one time, we really lost 2 nil, and <laughs> we were so bad. But the other three times, we, we lost 2-1 and we always went one goal ahead. And then the second half, the tendency of the players is to get tired because that week, for them, it is really intense. We train them mentally as well as physically, mentally, physically, emotionally. Emotionally, the TV, and then, yeah. you know, they play for the first time in front of the cameras and... So sometimes they tend to get mentally and physically tired in the second half. That's why we lost three matches to one. And also, Lorenzo didn't get the tactic rights. You know, it's just 
Typical. <laughs> Absolutely typical. There's something I've learned. You should stick to cooking When books. things don't go well, just blame your right-hand man. It's the coach's fault. <laughs> it's good to be the boss. It's exactly. good to be the king. Sometimes. What, you changed each of our lives a little bit, like really? you're doing these... For the better. For the, for the immensely better. <laughs> because you became a TV star in this country... When our uh, television opened us up to Italian football, it was your life, you knew it, it wasn't an impact on you because you grew up watching it play and it succeeding in it. You must know from the feedback you've had since you became an honorary Brit, which you are, a gentleman of London, the impact that Cateta, Football Italia, with James Richardson had on all of us. It was genuinely extraordinary. At what point in Italy did you become aware that this Channel 4 programme was opening up British minds to Syria. Ah, at what point did you get interviewed on it? It was only when you came to London that you found out that Channel 4 was... Because the impact on all of us, I tell you now, listeners who bombarded us with questions about that era, and both for Martin and Neil who are sitting here with you in your house, it definitely changed our lives in terms of what we thought about football, how we understood it, what we wanted to see. The comparison between English and Scottish football then and Italian football was, was much greater than it is now. When did it begin to impinge on your consciousness that you were becoming the focus of British interest? Well, I didn't realise that until I came to London for the first time because, uh, yes, I remember being interviewed for Gazzetta Italia a few times by this... Um, lovely journalist with, uh, you know, very fluent in Italian. And uh, so we knew that there was something going on about the Serie A in UK and on TV. But uh, at that time, I was so focused on, on, on making sure that I was doing my job properly with Sampdoria and Juventus. So premiership wasn't really in my mind. Obviously, it became very, something very close to me before I, you know, when I left Juventus. But then when I came to London to play for Chelsea, I had so many people telling me, oh, I remember Gazette, oh, that was a lovely show. I remember seeing you with some Dorian Juventus on a Sunday morning. So I realised that for most of the English uh, football fans, Gazette Italia was like a, a favourite show. And I think that, you know, one of the successes of that show was that it was Italian football, but everything was one minute, minute and a half. So you didn't have time to get bored <laughs> with all the tactical <laughs> issues that we have in our football. So it was just the best of Italian football. And at that time, I've got to say that Italian football was definitely the best because we had the greatest possible combination. Eight Italian players in the side, plus three foreigners. Obviously, you could sign only three foreigners, so all the money were going for the good ones. And we had the likes of Ruth Hullet, Bambasten, Reichert, Cerezo, Platini, Zico, Maradona. The best foreigners were in Italy, together with a lot of solid, reliable Italian players. Let's talk about your three. You mentioned Katanec, Toninho Cerezo, and Alexei Mikhailachenko. Um, when you look back on that Sampdoria era now, and not only Italian football has changed, but Samp has has changed beyond all recognition. The only title in their history was won there. You you won so many cups, you won so many trophies. You played a brand of football which was gorgeous to watch. Sam, for their iconography, for the strip, for the way in which you played, for that combination of everything that you and Mancini brought to it, Vierkovod, you know, a player to adore. The guy who I think hasn't been spoken about enough in this country is probably Boscov. Mm. I don't know what you think of him. I know that he was a mix of Intensity, discipline, eccentricity, dedication to attack, I think. 
Oh, what kind of impact did Boscov have on you? What do you remember? What would you tell people who want to understand that coach who was so important to Sampdoria? Tell us about him. Well, I think he's one, it was the kind of, um, or manager that you don't have. It was more like uh, the old fashioned uh, English manager. Yeah. Sort of like a, the boss, but also a father figure, someone with great communication skills, someone incredibly knowledgeable because he was a citizen of the world. He had been in Holland, he's been in Spain, he grew up in Yugoslavia, and Italy could speak uh, five or six different languages. He had a vast, incredibly vast experience. And for us, it was just uh, perfect because um, we knew we were a good side, but we didn't really have the confidence. And um, I think that um, as well as all his tactical knowledge, he installed in us a huge amount of confidence. He made us believe that we could win the league, we could win the European Cups, we could win the Champions League. So really, I believe and our confidence skyrocketed when, when Boscov arrived at, at, at Sampdoria. And for me in particular, it was like a father figure. He knew me so well. He was also a great psychologist. And uh, I could sit there at dinner, for example, in a different table, just looking at the players having supper. I could tell whether two players were not getting on very well, whether one player had a, had a problem with his girlfriend, <laughs> another player was particularly stressed out or, or was feeling too much pressure thinking about the game the next. So it was fantastic from that sense. And from a tactical point of view, it just instead of working on our defects, he just wanted to improve our qualities, if you know what I mean. So it wasn't spending too much time telling us what we were doing wrong. It was just telling most of the time telling us what we were doing right and encourage us to do even better. This isn't sense. flattery, but I imagine that if he were here today, he would say that you were his, a gift to him. Apart from your ability, your attitude to work, your intensity every day, your desire to win and change and improve... You can speak objectively about yourself, I know you can. You must have been a gift to him. Well, I tried to do my part in the best possible way. And I, you know, the secret was Bosco, but it was also this incredible sense of belonging that every player had at Sampdoria. I mean, we were going to sleep with the pyjama, with the Sampdoria. Uh, strip color, on. Strip on. Uh, and meaning that we were in love with the club, we were in love with the owner, and the organisation, the structure, the fans, we wanted to be there and we wanted to take the club to the next level, to the very, very top. So for us, it was like a mission. And therefore, we were 100% dedicated to that cause and we were working together for a team objective. We weren't thinking about ourselves, we were thinking about the team. You're a very analytical man, judged by how you, you speak about football, how you coached, what you say on television, your fantastic book with Gabriel, that Gabriel helped you write. When you look back at what you've just described, was it just a fluke that that happened? It wasn't only Boscov. If it wasn't a fluke, how on earth do you get that combination of all the right elements at the one time if it's not a fluke, where, were, where was the planning? What were the elements looking at? Well, the element was just one person, the owner, Paolo Bantovani, one of the greatest chairman or, or club owners in the history of Italian football, in my opinion. He had a dream. He wanted to challenge the status quo mm -hmm. and, and prove that you could win something, the Italian Championship, for example, the Serie A, without being a financial powerhouse. And um, this is how he sold us the Sampdoria dream. 
So when I first met him, he didn't tell me what he wanted to do or how he wanted to do it. The first thing he told me was why he wanted to do it. He said, I want to challenge the status quo and prove that we can do it. And that was just perfect. I want to be on board. I like you, I like your dream, and I want to be part of it. And I remember just, you know, sometimes going to the um, head office to collect our salary. And that was an opportunity for us to um, meet the president and go walk into his office and, and just have a chat with him. And I remember just leaving his office feeling like I could walk on water because that's how he made me feel. And the same goes with everybody else at the club. So that's why it was easier whenever we had the opportunity to leave the club and go to a potentially bigger club like AC Milan or Juventus just to turn them down because we wanted to complete our job at Sampdoria. That was our mission. What do you think made Mantovani feel like that, that he had to push against the status quo? I don't really know. I think it's just, you know, just something that you dream or it's just a challenge. Or Was he a rebel? Because that's really. not my impression. No, not, not really. It was a very sort of... Uh, calm person, very analytical, very... He was a thinker, but he was a forward thinker. And I think, like, Steve Jobs, you know, <laughs> what make you think like, like that? It's just, uh, it's just what we are. Personality. Yeah, personality. Well, what were the barriers? If Mantovani sold you all a dream and Boscov gave you confidence and emphasised your strengths, not your defects, and you went out as a group, all 14, 15, 16, 17, and you were saying... Okay, we can win the title. Well, apart from playing against sides with big budgets, was there a perceived idea that if you're from Genoa, then authorities would be against you or the fans would be against you or referees? Explain what the battle was before you put your boots on. That's exactly what you just said. I, mean, I, I think that uh, you, know, you feel like they don't treat us fairly. Everybody uh, sort of is conspiring against us. Because we're a small club, we don't sell newspapers, we are not, you know, TV shows would be different with us. Which is wrong, because as Leicester has just proved, it's great for the game. When you realise that in football nothing is impossible, and even a smaller team can be at the top of the championship at the end of the season. And it becomes a much more sellable product, in my opinion. It's more democratic. It's perceived as a clean game. Anyway. Romantic. Uh, romantic. Uh, sure. I mean, it's great, but we felt that that wasn't the case in Italy. So we were playing against somebody, which made us probably stronger. Uh, I don't know whether we were right or wrong to feel as if it was twice as difficult for a club like Sampdoria to, you know, to win the title, but that gave us some extra motivations. And we used it to our advantage. But I've got to say that when we won the title... We had penalties against the likes of AC Milan, Juventus, uh, Inter Milan. Who took them? I took them all. Mm-hmm. How did it go? Quite <laughs> uh, well. I was, I was blessed by God. That season, I couldn't <laughs> do anything wrong. So I scored them all. But if I think about that season now, I can feel that everything was on our side. <laughs> we were meant to win it because we were treated exactly like a big club. So I don't know whether we deserved it, because our performances probably led the referees to, to referee in a certain way. Because sometimes, you know, If you're always in the penalty box of your opponents, you're likely to you get win penalty more than if you're not. So, 
So I think it was a very fair championship. We'll come on to somebody that I know you admire, you know, Alex Ferguson, although he wasn't in the Sampdoria of England. He circled the wagons and said everybody's against us all the same. It's yeah. a very powerful stimulus. Yeah. It's, it's, it, sort of it's a beautiful yeah. idea. Yeah. How, when everybody knows that it's a, a tactic, managers keep being able to sell it to players, I don't know. I think we all have an appetite for fighting against perceived opponents. I think we all love it and it's part of human psyche. But sorry, Graham, sorry to, to interrupt you, but no. footballers... Actually, whether the managers try to encourage that kind of siege mentality or not, footballers, are always, they always feel as if everything is against them. You know, they read the newspapers, they only focus on that tiny, tiny little sort of, you know, uh, phrase that says something quite negative rather than the 25 pages where they <laughs> saw. It's something that is in the footballers' mentality. Every, every journalist who's listening to this now, including the three in the room, know that if there's a beautiful match report and somebody's talked about well, and these stupid little marks that they make us do, usually by a guy in the office who hasn't really watched the game, and they go, oh, well, listen, uh, Roberto Mancini, six out of ten. What we'll all get is a phone <laughs> call from that player saying... <laughs> That's the only time footballers will speak to journalists these days to, to complain about exactly what you're talking yeah. about. But I, I need to cover two or three things before we move off uh, the city of Genoa and Samp. What were the Seven Dwarves? Is, is this true? Did it exist? We used to go every Thursday night to the same restaurant owned by a guy who was no longer with us, unfortunately. And it was just a perfect retreat. You know, it was like a way to take an eye off from uh, everything else that we were doing, families or friends, just get together and watch TV, watch football on TV, uh, like the Wafer Cup or something else, and, uh, and play cards and have fun, have a laugh, eat well, talk about football from time to time. It was just another opportunity to spend some time together and reinforce this team spirit. So this team spirit you've talked about, Luca, to get away from playing and working hard and pushing against the world, to get away from that, you went out together. That's a really big statement because <laughs> to get away from it, the, the logical thing should be like, oh, we'll go for a drive in the country with the wife or we'll go to the cinema or maybe I'll go and see my dad or my best friend. But to get away from things, well, that, that you went is, out together. That is, that's, that's a sacrifice. That's amazing. I mean, spending time with your family could be like... <laughs> You've well, met I mean, my family, haven't you? Uh, you mean no, my... I, 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 I people. to say, at that time, I was married to football. So I had a girlfriend, but I didn't have a wife, didn't have children. So for me, football was my main um, passion. And, you know, I was focused on football all the time. But I think that football, what footballers want to do is to get together and without being obliged to think about football. That's how you relax. Your teammates, but you don't talk about football, you do something else, which yeah. is what we okay. did on a Thursday night. Okay. We were together, but we were playing cards, and we were laughing, and we were smoking cigarettes, and we were just, but it was just one way to be together without, and, and recharge our batteries, and wind down, or unwind, or whatever, yes. We had nicknames, going back to your seven dwarfs. We had nicknames, there was seven of us, Snow White, was the guy that owned the restaurant, and then... <laughs> let's let's so, say hello to him. Let's, na- let's say he's no longer with us. Yes. Let's name him. Let's say... Edilio. Edilio. It's a, it's a lovely restaurant that is just next door to the uh, stadium in Genoa, and it's where we used to put our cars before the match and park our cars there and, and send our families there to eat before the match, and then we would meet our family our families after the match there, and he was just a lovely fellow. Adelio yeah. played his small role Absolutely. in Sampdoria Absolutely. winning the title. We, Absolutely. We, he deserves yeah. to be named. Yeah, Adelio. And, and I would 
like to name also the sport director, Paolo Bore, who's also no longer with us. He died a couple of years ago, unfortunately. And he's the guy that was in between the chairman, yeah. Paolo Antovani and Boschkov. And he was trying to execute the dream and give um, Boschkov all the ammunition to, you know. So Paolo brought you from Cremonese, for example. Yes. Yes. These are these are vital yeah. people that put the jigsaw pieces Absolutely. together. Do the scouting, do the negotiations. So Snow White was Idilio. Yes. He, I was I was um I don't know the English translation, the guy that sleeps all the time. Pisolo we call it. Well if it's the seven towards it, it's sleepy. Sleepy, exactly. Sleepy. Because I love sleeping in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was uh, the guy uh, Eolo. Guy that's got to do with wind uh, Eolo, like the wind. Wow. Uh, Whoa. That, one of the I have to books. look it up. It'll be in the intro. When I introduced okay. this, I was like, Eolo, people, means sneezy. No. No, sneezy. Not no, to no, do with no, the sneezy, sneezy. That's a different kind of wind. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> These are stage directions. Well, They're useful it, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> sneezy, was, that, was a, that was a reach, Neil. That was a reach. <laughs> so we have nicknames, and these are all palatable. Your mum can listen to them all. That's fantastic. And is it Adelio's restaurant one Thursday night when the cards are going badly that you all decide to bleach your hair? Yes. Uh, what, was the, what was that about? Well, no, not when things were going badly, but when we were going quite well and we wanted to make a pact, make a promise. How do you say the word? A plead? Yeah. A pledge. A pledge. Sorry, a pledge. And uh, so we thought, if we're going to win the title, we're going to dye our hair blonde. So it was the three of us. Uh, myself... Ivano Bonetti, left back, Antonino Cerezo, the Brazilian midfielder. Obviously, <laughs> imagine a Brazilian player with dark skin and uh, dark moustache <laughs> with orange hair. And we went to see the Pope three days after, or five days after. To ask him if he would. <laughs> no, I remember <laughs> we went to see the Pope, and I was blonde. Antonino Cerezo was orangey, more than blonde. <laughs> and the Pope just shook her hands and we kissed his hand and his ring. Look, Antonino Cerezo thought, <laughs> what the hell is going on? And that was quite funny, I've got to say. <laughs> the, the last thing I need to ask you about Sampdoria, because we, we could spend a day talking about the cups, the atmosphere, but your life and your career has been so rich that I have to stop by asking about it. The, the title really... I'm not sure if you sealed it, but it became an absolute reality at Inter. Yes. In a San Siro. Yes. In a game which my memory is that it was just crazy, with red cards, with your goalkeeper, Pajoka, making so many saves. I don't know what the score might have been at the end. Maybe... I think 2-0. Yeah, but could it have been 8-6? Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. No, it, it was this kind of game? Yeah. Do you remember anything about it, apart yeah. from the emotion of winning? What, what? No, no, I remember. I remember the game quite well. I was with three or four games to the end of the season, and Inter Milan were just a couple of points behind us, so they needed to beat us in order to either overtake us, or I don't remember... But they had to win. They had to win, they had to win. And they had a very strong side with the likes of Klisman, Lotto Mateus, uh, Walter Zenga in goal, Trapattoni was managing. and uh, Beppe Bergomi. Beppe Bergomi. And Beppe Bergomi and Roberto Mancini, we, we are very good friends, and uh, Beppe Bergomi and Roberto Mancini, had, you know, something happened towards the end of the first half. They both got sent off. And they left the pitch <laughs> hugging each other because they were very good, you know, good friends. And it was just a moment of madness and... And they were shown the red card. But they were sort of creating more chances. But we were very clinical. 
we were taking our chances. So we scored the first goal in the second half. And then it became like a siege. Uh, but Paluca made some wonderful saves. But that's the way we used to play. You know, we were very tight at the back, very solid defensively. And we were playing, you know, very spectacular, effective counter-attacking football. So we were one goal up and just waiting for them to do something. And then they had a penalty. I think Paluca saved it. And then I scored the second goal, you know, beside the stadium where our fans were. And that was huge for me. It was really incredibly exciting. And then I think 2-0 was the final. 2 was. And uh, it could have been different, but that was our season. You know, we deserved it, even though Inter Milan really tried everything in order to beat us. How does the city of Christopher Columbus, how do the Genovese treat champions? Well, the problem with Genoa is that... Is there uh, one? Sorry? Is there one? Yeah, there is one. Only one, possibly, but there is a huge problem. And, uh, you know, you win the title, you expect to be the king of the town. But unfortunately, there is 50% of the town that supports... A bit like in Glasgow. Let's not even name them. Let's not even... They begin with G. So, yes, on the one hand, you see 50% of the people that sees you and they think you're God. And then you see 50% (laughs) of the people that hates you. uh, Hates you very much because... uh, they can't stand those colours, they can't stand your team, and they can't stand seeing your teams succeeding, which is, you know, very Italian. It's just in football, but you feel it. Did it make I, life dif- yeah, difficult? Yeah, it makes life difficult. If I had been a bit more fiery, I could have you know, fallen out three or four times a day. You know, just standing there waiting for a friend to come and pick you up outside your house. You know, there are people driving their scooters and... You get one of them say, "Ah, oh, well, I'll look up. Some Doria fan. And then another Sunday fan. And then the third one, oh, fuck off. Yeah. And then you, so you think, why? Because I'm in Genoa and not everybody supports the team I play for, which makes it quite tricky in a, in a way. You go to a restaurant, you meet, immediately identify the clients that are supporting your, your team and the clients that are not because of the way they look at you. It wasn't Neapolitan. Pocciolovetti once told me that he lived by the sea and people would hire boats to come and sit at the bottom of the garden to throw insults and throw bricks at him, and, and it was crazy. It wasn't so bad in Genoa, or it no. could get Neapolitan? No, 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 no. I think that we never had a problem with our own fans, like probably Lavezzi was mentioning, his own fans from Naples doing that when the team wasn't performing particularly well. But we never had a problem. The relationship between the fans and the players was fantastic. They knew we were trying our best. Yeah. They knew we were in love with the club and we wanted to win as much as they did. The problem was with the, you know, the other side of... The Genovese. Genovese. I, I remember I went to, to, to interview Crespo there once. I mean, I'm talking once. about problems, but no huge problems. Yeah, no, Just no. A, you know, not it, pleasant. Not if pleasant. it had been a one-club city and you won the title, exactly. it could have been paradise, like no? Florence and Naples, yeah. There's exactly. a tiny little detail that you'll know about when I went to interview Crespo when he was at Genoa. I went into their little villa, which is their headquarters, kind of stuck in the middle of motorways and buildings, just this little picture. I'm sorry to speak so well about them, but a picturesque little place. You go into their reception desk, and their full name is Genoa Calcio and Cricket Club, I think. And there's a little battered cricket ball sitting right on the reception desk. So maybe they were the cricket club and you were the genuine football club. Well, I, I don't know about that, but you know, I've got nothing against them. I'm just saying that it was not... Ideal, not to be able to really and thoroughly enjoy winning because you know because 50% of, of the town was not happy about you winning. Talk about, talking like, about having 
something against people or teams? Barcelona. Against Bastards. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. No, but yeah. But... Cup winners, cup final in Switzerland. Yeah. Wembley. Champions a moment which really changed Britain a great deal because irrespective of maybe Champions League's finals since then have become still more spectacular. It was a, it was a game of a lot of beautiful football, good chances, elegant flowing football at a time when fan misbehaviour in Britain was bad. European football, we'd watched a lot of Catanaccio on television for some years before. To me, that 92 final, disappointing as it was for you, was a big breakthrough mm. for people in Britain saying, OK, that's how football should be played. But those were two really frustrating... Even for a man who won all the European... You won all the UEFA trophies. Those two experiences, could you draw a positive from them? Are they still sore? What? Well, first occasion was when we played them in... Uh, in Bern. Bern, yeah. And it was the uh, Cup Winners' Cup final, and I played, I was injured. I pulled my hamstring oh. a couple of weeks before with uh, the national team, stupidly, because I wanted to play in a friendly match. I wasn't 100% right. I played anyway. I pulled my hamstring for the first time, didn't know how to deal with that. So I got to the final thinking that I was reasonably fit, but then during the warm up, I pulled my hamstring again. I went back into the dressing room, I spoke to Boshkov and I said, look, I'm not fit. And he said to me, look, don't you worry, you just go on the pitch and all the defenders, once they see you, they will be terrified. So even if you're not fit, we need you in the side. Well, guess what? They weren't that terrified when they saw me just you know, limping on the pitch for 90 minutes. And we lost 2-0. Mm. Gary Lineker was part of that yeah, side. Yeah. Johan Cruyff was the manager. And I remember after the match, back in the hotel... Some of the senior players, in the likes of Cerezo, Dosena, I remember them thinking, oh, bloody hell, that was, you know, one in a lifetime opportunity. And we missed it. Little did they know that a year later, we were back in the final, Cup Winners' Cup, and Gotebo versus Anderlecht, and we won it. I need to do this again. Yeah. Who, who scored? Got, I, it's a matter of I record. I happened to score twice. Uh, okay. <laughs> thank you very much. So, yes, and it's quite funny because I grew up with, um, you know, many idols, but probably one of the biggest was, was Jan Cruyff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember watching this movie made by an Italian uh, journalist called The Prophet of Gaul uh, with Jan Cruyff, and I was in love with Jan Cruyff, and so it was mentioned that side. They took the Cup Winners' Cup away from us and also the Champions League final away from us. And the Champions League final was a huge regret for me because it was my last match with Sampdoria. Mm. I wanted to leave the club with a huge present for the fans. I had my opportunities during the match. I missed them, then signed for Juventus. And I was very emotional. So for four years after that final, I remember every now and then waking up at night with nightmares, thinking that the match had still to be played. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then realising that actually I had already fucked it up, so I, you know, the opportunity had gone. But that probably gave me the strength and the desire and the motivation to win it with Juventus four years later. And when I won it with Juventus, obviously my thoughts were back to the Sampdoria fans, my teammates, because they somehow made me able to do a better job second time round. It's an extraordinary description. People will apply that, I, I think, in their own training, in their own lives. I think people will draw from that, just like they do from football nightmares. They'll learn. I, I wasn't going to mention, uh, Cruyff, people who have listened to the podcast, I have to draw a breath and be quite careful here, 
No, uh, my complete adoration for him. I met him many times. Um, I worked with him as recently as last October. And I was with the guys when he died, going to interview Jody Morris, who spoke so highly of what you taught him. What you, and um, therefore, if we can just spare a minute to talk a little bit more about Cruyff, can you describe a little bit about what influenced a boy from Cremona about this, this Dutchman who maybe growing up, you couldn't have seen a lot of some, but how the hell hmm. does a man like that get into your skin, into my skin at a time when we didn't have non-stop television all the time? I don't know. We could I, just I tell us something it, about I think that that was the secret because you could see a bit of them and the rest was through your imagination and your dreams and, and you playing and pretending to be them and, and, and while you're playing, you're telling, you know, you're, you're commentating your own mm. <laughs> games. And uh, I was born in 1964 and I was an Inter Milan fan as well as a Cremonese fan, the club from my own town. And I remember Ajax beating Inter Milan in 71 or 72 with Johan Cruyff scoring twice in the final in Rotterdam. You know, that team Ajax with these guys, you know, just superheroes, supermen, mm. long hair, this incredible football ability and physical ability. Even the colours? And the colours. And really, they were super cool. They yeah, were and yeah. unbelievable. So, and then Holland team in 74 and the World Cup in Germany and the way they played football and the fact that they had girlfriends always with them and mm. uh, you know you thought oh my god these guys are special and then the movie that I was talking about The Prophet of Gaul it was elegant it was incredibly skillful he had huge personality it was a bit mysterious because we didn't know everything about them we, yeah. we knew something about them so it caught my imagination and then he became an opponent and then he became a friend because um, we both ran a charitable foundation. Johan has got his and we've got ours in Italy and we organise golf events through, through which we try to raise money to finance projects uh, of research for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, the Lou Gehrig disease. You remember the ice bucket challenge Absolutely. and everything? And so through golf events we organise programs and, and Johan... And we'd done it 13 times. I think he came to play at least 10 times with his wife. And he was donating money and he was really supporting our mission. And um, so, obviously, we were devastated. Bef when, uh, when it Before we explain your foundation, because somebody who has... I don't think it's always natural for somebody who has gifts and has everything in life to then think of others. I think it's the right thing to do, but I don't think it's natural. I don't think so many people do it. One of the things that, I, that gets me angry, really angry is that when people, some people were always jealous of Cruyff and don't give him credit for the fact that he dedicated so much time and money towards making physically and mentally handicapped kids feel what Boscov made you feel, that they can fly because they involve themselves in sport and it changes their mentality, it changes their lives. All over the world there are Cruyff courts now that he fundraised for or his organisation donated. And this was a man like you with your foundation, who was intent on giving back all the time. And it angers me that people were, particularly in Catalonia, people were derogatory about this sometimes. He, he always likes to make money. Look what he was doing with the money. Well, I didn't know about that. I, I thought it, everybody was just really in favour of what he was doing. But anyway, I can tell you what. I, I, was, I was sort of football, football. I was married to football until I was 40, and then I 
my, my beautiful South African wife <laughs> and had two kids. But then uh, you, at some stage, when I was fired by Watford as manager, then I took a year off, basically. I was fighting a legal battle with the club. And, and then when you basically have got time to reflect and think, you realise that... Actually, I was watching with a dear friend of mine I was watching um, golf on TV and I heard about the Tiger Woods Foundation and I thought, you know, they, they got it right. You know, they, they do it, they do sport, they do it competitively, but also they find the right time to give something back. And um, the idea was to, with my good friend Massimo Mauro, to create a foundation and raise money through something that we would have done anyway, but... The idea was to turn it into something that could have helped us to raise money. For example, golf. You play golf anyway. Why don't you make sure that you find a way to organize a golf event where you can meet with your friends, you have a great time, you laugh, you drink. You... But the actual aim is to raise money and, and give it to some charitable causes. And therefore, we started our foundation. The idea was to raise money for what we wanted. Yeah, we could have done many, many things, but we wanted to make a difference in supporting something that at that time in Italy was unfortunately very popular, this amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, because it had attacked and, and killed some of our colleagues. So we felt that was also the, there was a lot of uh, misinformation about the disease that somebody thought was connected to the doping uh, yeah. or, or things like that. So we wanted to find out exactly why and possibly find a cure. So that's our mission. And I've got to say that it makes me feel better. It makes me feel a better human being. Mm -hmm. it, when I wake up in the morning and I think that, yes, I was that guy that you know, was kicking the ball around and won a few trophies, that makes me feel good with myself. But when I think about what I'm doing now, I feel even better. And I always say, be selfish, get involved in charity, because... You're selfish because you might do it because it makes you feel better. But if you do it, then eventually you make other people better. And I think it's one way to look at it because, yes, I would like to say that I'm a, the greatest guy on earth. I'm not. I'm a sinner and I've got my faults. But I think that through this uh, effort that I do, I feel better. And if I feel better, I'm a better person when I'm around you, you and you. In, and, yeah, in and, moral philosophy terms, it's called the right act for the right reasons. Exactly. And it's supposed to be the epitome of the human condition because you can make the right act for the wrong reasons, you can the wrong act for the right... The epitome of human existence is the right act for yeah, the right reasons. It, 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 Aristotle, I think, called it the egoismo illuminato. Ecolo. So the uh, enlightened selfish. <laughs> it's perfect so, description. Yeah. Yes, you do it for the others, but you do it also for yourself. And if you feel better with yourself, you feel better with others. And I think that would make the world a better place. Let's name it, Luca, because people will listen, people will be inspired. We will name it formally on our website. I will give details in the introduction and the outro. But let's name how people can find it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the Fondazione Vialle Mauro. We say for sport and research. And basically it's www.fondazionevialiamauro.com okay. very easy to find it and we have um, been active since 2003 and uh, bear in mind that we are an Italian organisation and we are not British where the culture of 
philanthropy is much bigger. Uh, we have raised 4 million euros, uh, which, in our opinion, is a lot of money. It's gigantic because what you're explaining yeah. is that there's a slightly different approach to philanthropic, <laughs> philanthropic. gestures in Italy yes. than yes. Britain. Yes. So, yes. in other words, exponentially, that's a gigantic sum. It's good. It's good. And obviously, we've done it. I mean, it's not my money. So, <laughs> yes, we've been the middle man between... The doctors, the scientists, which are using the money to do researches, but it's through sponsors, it's through individual donations, so the, the generous people, we are just there in the middle. To Look, make you're speaking happen. to an audience of 2.5, 2.6 million people have listened to us. You're speaking to an audience who love football. And Lou Gehrig's disease, for what, I don't know the reason it happened, but like you said, it takes down footballers. And not just great, famous footballers. Maybe it will be affecting people who listen yeah. to this. So it's worthwhile emphasising it. And we'll, the big interview, we'll, we'll find a way to support you. How good was that? Viali's a topper. There's more to come too. The big interview is produced by Backpage and me, Graham Hunter. Thanks to Beer Jacket for the music. Keep up to date with everything we're doing at grahamhunter.tv where there's a little box for your email address. Sign up there and you'll get our newsletter which includes the chance to put your questions to our guests. We're on Facebook, search for The Big Interview and at GH Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Keep in touch, let us know what you think. Thanks for listening to part one. Part two is out on Saturday. Ciao for now. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 